welcome to Adventures in Space and Tim, a monthly podcast inspired by space travel in general and Tim Peake's mission to the International Space Station in particular. April the 12th, 2016, marks the 55th anniversary of the first human to travel into space, Yuri Gagarin, who orbited the Earth in his Vostok spacecraft. Hundreds of people have followed him out into the cosmos over the last half a century, and at the end of 2015, the spacefaring world celebrated 15 years of a constant human presence aboard the International Space Station. That's 15 years of humans being a species that's not just found living on planet Earth. As we record this, Tim Peake has spent over 100 days in orbit. He's one of six people currently in space, all living aboard the ISS. But what are the challenges that we humans meet as spacefarers? How do we get to live in orbit? And where do we go next? We'll be exploring the answers in this new series of podcasts. In this episode, we'll meet DIY rocket builder Mads Wilson and discover how getting your own spacecraft off the ground means learning lessons from both the history of rocketry and Monty Python. Uh, unfortunately, the E2X is now an X rocket. <laughs> it, has, it has ceased to be. We'll experience the thrill of a launch with Spaceman superstar Chris Hadfield and find out what happens when everything goes right. And it's actually kind of funny when you get to nine minutes and you're in orbit and the engine's shut off. 50% of your training has been wasted. And with flight director Libby Jackson, we'll learn how ground control right a major wrong. Water was, was coming over the back of his head. It was sticking to him. And, and by the time he was getting to the airlock, it was getting over his eyes so we couldn't see. And it was getting into his ears so his communication system stopped working. He wasn't able to communicate with anyone. On Tuesday, 15th December 2015, the UK's Tim Peake blasted off from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. We've got used to the idea over the years that going into space is something governments and countries do, organisations like NASA and ESA, or at the very least the super-rich, Elon Musk and Richard Branson. Right now, if you want to go into space, you need to either be a professional astronaut, part of a national or international space programme, or you need to be a billionaire who's able to spend millions of pounds to pay for a seat on a mission. But could this all be about to change? Mads Wilson spends his free time working for an organisation called Copenhagen Suborbitals. Three, two, one. We are a non-profit all-volunteer organisation who are working on being the first amateurs in the world to put a man in space. So, why are they doing this? Why not leave it to governments and the super-rich? Because one of the things that we want to show is that spaceflight does not have to be insanely expensive. One of the reasons why spaceflight today is very expensive and one of the reasons why it's very, very difficult is because spaceflight or commercial spaceflight is all about efficiency. Because you want to build rockets and engines that are very efficient because they need to, you know, every last pound counts. You need to put as much weight into space as possible with each uh, launch. Going there is not the object in itself. You need to, you, you, because you can, you can make more money. I, I know that NASA doesn't make money, but but take take space SpaceX for example. Uh, it'll get cheaper to get a big satellite in orbit if you have a very efficient rocket. So what we are doing, we are actually going back to the roots of spaceflight and seeing, okay. We take the basic technology and we try to make it as simple as we can. That is also one of our philosophies, that good enough is good enough. 
what we are doing needs to be only just good enough to serve the purpose, no more. We couldn't have done this 50 years ago, because 50 years ago, what we are, what we are using today was only available as cutting-edge technology. But, but the components we're using are readily available today, so, so you can actually buy everything you need. It doesn't have to be space-rated. Or, 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 or you know, developed for spaceflight uh, for us to use it to build to build a rocket. I, I know that some of our critics have said, "But well, hey, these guys are just doing the stuff that we did 50 years ago," which is true. But the difference is that back then it was NASA who had a huge government budget who built all this. Today, we are a group of people with a yearly budget of maybe. 10 or 20,000 pounds, and we are doing something similar. The organisation now has about 55 members working in their spare time to send someone into space. But why are they so confident this is possible? Well, basically, it's not that difficult, really. The principles of building a rocket is actually fairly simple. That being said, in practice, it is extremely hard to do. Uh, but, 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 uh, but, we kind of just have always had this idea, like, how hard can this actually be? Uh, so you just start from the beginning. What we have figured out, though, is that, and this might sound surprising, but the most difficult part about building a rocket is actually not the rocket itself. It is, it is all the things you need to do around the rocket. For example, you need to construct, design, and devise some sort of, 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 of launch complex where you can actually launch your rocket. And that is a, actually a task in itself that is bigger than building the rocket. The Copenhagen Suborbital Group launched their test rockets at sea. Well, um, basically we do that because launching a rocket from land is extremely difficult. Not uh, not practically because it would actually it would be the easiest if we could just uh, if we just launch from land because you have this uh, huge advantage uh, when launching from land that the uh, Earth is not moving beneath you, <laughs> uh, which is actually uh, a lot easier than than working on the on the launch platform on the, on, on the sea. But it, there are very few places in the world where you can actually launch a rocket, and that is. Uh, both due to the fact that you know uh, we have we have all the civilian air traffic, there are planes everywhere, and and the uh, the airspace is very highly regulated. Uh, but is but also because uh, when you put something up, it will come down, and you need to be sure that you can control where this rocket actually will come down, and that is for example why uh, why NASA also is is launching at um, at Merritt Island, very close to the sea. Because if they have uh, if they have some accident, some rocket that that goes wrong or explodes, or they have to 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 self destruct, then they are over water, and and it, you don't do as much damage when you're over water as you do when you go over land. So that is also one of the reasons that when you do stuff like this from sea, then the risk of doing harm on your way down is a lot, lot, lot smaller than if you were firing from land. So, how long before they launch an astronaut? I would say hopefully within 10 years. Uh, and, and the joker here is money. Uh, you know, either you have unlimited, unlimited money or unlimited time. And we don't have either. 
uh, I would say that at our current pace, within 10 years, uh, we have promised ourselves that we will do, we have to have three successful missions with the rocket, three successful unmanned missions. And once we have done that, then we will put a man in the rocket. Currently, we have built two big rockets, and one of them uh, had the the capability of 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 reaching the edge the edge of space, and that was the that was the Heat Two X. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, the Heat Two X um, to um, to put it in the words of uh, Monty Python, uh, the Heat Two X is now an is now an X rocket. <laughs> It has uh, it has ceased to be. Um, that rocket uh, died a very a beautiful but very violent death on the test stand uh, last uh, last autumn. Uh, one of my good friends, our our lead engine designer Jonas, uh, like he he uh, he by the way he's working uh, in with uh, with rocket engines uh, professionally also. He usually says that building rockets is ninety eight percent of the time you will be banging your head against the wall and then two percent or maybe even only one percent of the times it will actually work and you will succeed so you need to be prepared to do that what happened was that there was a um, a uh, design flaw in the engine that uh, and and because of that the engine collapsed uh, during testing there's a very very beautiful video of it on our youtube channel uh, where you can you can see uh, when we lit up the rocket, and you can see that after about a second, the engine, the the inner wall of the engine collapsed, uh, and that 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 uh, that meant that uh, all the six hundred liters of alcohol burned in in about uh, ten seconds, which again meant that means that that the rocket got so hot that the bottom part of the fins uh, that uh, that they were made of aluminum, they actually also burned. So uh, it was very, very beautiful, very beautiful. It's not just the technology of spacecraft that's changed in the last 55 years. The experience is now very different for astronauts. For Yuri Gagarin, the controls on his spacecraft were locked because no one was totally sure how humans would function in microgravity. Inside his capsule was an envelope with an override code, just in case. Things have changed, but there's no doubt it's still a dangerous thing to do. So... I asked Chris Hadfield, what's it like to be waiting to take off? Chris has travelled to the ISS in both the Space Shuttle and the Soyuz rocket that launched in peak in December. I'm quite a nervous flyer on an aeroplane, so I asked him what it feels like in those final few moments before you're about to blast off. I think maybe the key thing is that we don't ride rockets or ride spaceships, we fly them. Mm. And there's an entirely different feel, even if you're on British Airways, to uh, being the captain up front who's pushing the throttles forward on takeoff to being someone in the back peering out the window. There's a whole different feeling of uh, competence and of authority and of decision-making and of uh, controllability of fate. And, and so uh, we're very much more in the captain's role uh, on a spaceship than we are in, in a passenger role. And so therefore, the, the vast majority of what's in your mind is, um, is your responsibilities and the things that are liable to go wrong and what they're going to look like and how you're going to react. That's what you're thinking about. 
uh, and if you're worried about uh, the the danger of it, it's way too late to be thinking about that. You have to have come to terms with the danger years and years before. Otherwise, how could you have deluded yourself to get to that point? If that's in your mind, then then it's just going to be a useless distraction. You know, it's like, yeah, this is a dangerous thing. But for the last 15 years, I've been getting ready for this thing. So now's not the time to be worried about it. I, I needed to have settled my worry a long time in the past. So I was, uh, the only, my only real worry was they wouldn't let us go. Mm. That day. You know, the weather would be bad. Or, so, um, so as a result, it's, uh, it's, what is mo- uppermost in your mind, absolutely, is focus on the vehicle health and your role and keeping the vehicle healthy and all of the immediate things you have to be able to recognize and respond to as each of them might potentially fail. Thousands of things. And it's actually kind of funny when you get to nine minutes and you're in orbit and the engine shut off, 50% of your training has been wasted, right? Because <laughs> you have trained for years and years and years for something to go wrong. And if the vehicle safely got you to orbit, then it's like, huh, okay, didn't need to train at all. Work great. And, and, but you don't feel that way, of no. course. It's kind of a, a rueful smile. Damn, huh, it all huh, went right. Didn't yes. need to train for that. <laughs> um, which is true for most airliners too, but occasionally it goes uh, wildly wrong and then you want all those skills. You need all those skills up front. So, so that's what's in your mind is the, the enormous mental load of the um, responsibility involved and how you're going to respond. And there's, all, there's an undercurrent of great excitement, uh, you know, the starting of a huge adventure. The, so you the, still have um, room for that excitement. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yes. there with you, of course. But, but, um, but it definitely um, has to be subdued to what's going on. You, you need, everybody needs you to, to be professional at what you're doing. So your rocket launches, your fuel only burns when and where it's supposed to burn. You make it safely to the International Space Station, where you're in regular contact with your team on the ground. Here's Libby Jackson. I was a flight director uh, for the Columbus module. So there's a team of people in Munich who are working in the mission control there. And in charge of that room, uh, which is is staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, is the flight director. So there's a team of about 12 people who, who do that, and I was one of them, and I was a flight director for three years, and I worked at Mission Control for seven years. In January, Tim Peake made his historic spacewalk, generating much excitement. But his fellow spacewalking astronaut, Tim Copra, ran into difficulties with water in his helmet. Spacewalking has always been tricky. The 18th March 2016 marked the 50th anniversary of the first ever spacewalk by Alexei Leonov. He also had difficulties after pressure changes in his suit made it extremely difficult to re-enter his Voxod 2 capsule. So, what happens when things go wrong? Here's the story of a near drowning in space. And the mantra that that all uh, mission controllers live by is is crew vehicle mission. So in all of our thoughts and discussions and, and decisions, we always put the crew first and we make sure that the crew are safe. Um, and only then do we consider the, the impacts to, to the vehicle, to the space station. Um, and once that is in a good position and safe, then we look at the mission. So you know, day to day, we know that the crew are safe and the vehicle are safe and we're keeping track of the mission. But that that hierarchy is something that we're always working with. But I've seen, you know, through through seven years in mission control and beyond, um, have seen all sorts of things happen. Uh, one of the uh, most recent ones that people I, I think are, are very aware of is that uh, Luca Parmitano, who is the Italian astronaut, 
was doing a spacewalk and, and nearly drowned in space, which was not something really that you'd have necessarily thought would happen. Drowning isn't, yes, that's not an obvious uh, pitfall that you prepare for necessarily. Could you could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Now, I, I actually followed this on Twitter because I was back in the UK at the time at the UK Space Conference. So it's, it wasn't something that I was on console to see. But I, as a flight director, as someone who's interested in human spaceflight, I am always um, keeping up to date with what the crew are doing. So what happened was that uh, there were two spacewalks that were planned, and this was the second one of them. Uh, and so it was Luca's second spacewalk. And uh, he'd gone out of the, out, uh, got his suit on, gone through the airlock and had started work. A, a little while into the, into the um, spacewalk, uh, Luca reported feeling some moisture on the back of his head. And uh, Chris Cassidy, who who was out doing the space with him, spoke to him and, and, and mission control. And uh, they said, hey, oh, maybe you're just working hard. Is it sweat? And he said, no, 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 it's not sweat. You know, I, I, I've done a spacewalk. I, I know what, you know, sweating feels like. And so then they started thinking that perhaps it was the, the drinks bag. So um, crew go out, they, they, they work hard in their spacesuits for eight hours and they, they can't eat because, of course, there's, there's no way to get your food inside your helmet. Uh, so, they, but they have drink, um, you know, and so sort of a juice type drink to to uh, rehydrate them and, and to give them energy as the day goes on. So that was sort of what they thought happened. But then Luca was tasting and said, "No, no, that's not that." Um, what they didn't know at the time, but what had happened, um, is that his cooling system was malfunctioning. So inside your spacesuit is many layers. It's a mini spacecraft. The astronauts um, work pretty hard and, and need to be cooled. So the whole thing is insulated so that you're, you don't feel the, the plus 200, minus 200 uh, temperatures um, when you're in the sun and shadow. But you still need to sort of get rid of the heat from, from your body as you're working. And so you have a undergarment, which is like a big white, white um, giant white onesie um, that basically got hose pipes all stitched into it and water flows around that. And in the backpack of the spacesuit is um, a unit where the warm water uh, the warm water is cooled and, and there's a sort of um, heat exchange unit. Almost like wearing a fridge. Oh, yes, exactly. Yes. There's a mini fridge. <laughs> and somewhere in that, that, there was a point where, where there's um, uh, water and air come close to each other and they're not supposed to, cro- to cross over, but there had been some deposits, um, some sort of mineral deposits that had, got, uh, had built up inside the water and had sort of there was a valve that should have been closed that was getting stuck open and this was causing water to go from the loop into the air system. And so it was coming up over the back of Luca's helmet and was and was just flooding his helmet. So um, now in, in your spacesuit, it's a closed system. And if you see, you know, you've, you've got your hands and your gloves, you can't go and wipe your face away or anything. And in a, in a microgravity environment where you don't feel the effects of gravity, there's the, the, the main force on water is surface tension. So this water started sticking to Luca's head now, as this was happening, the water was sort of kept coming in and there was more and more. And, and after Luca had said, no, I, I don't know what this is. Uh, this is not normal. Mission control made absolutely the right decision to stop the EVA. So so they said, right, Luca, you, you've got to go back to the airlock and, and, and get back through. And, and he made his way back um, and got through. What he didn't tell us at the time, but you find out reading his blog afterwards, which is, it's, I thoroughly recommend you read it and your listeners um, read it. It's, it's, it's riveting reading. Was that this water was, was coming over the back of his head. It was sticking to him. And, and by the time he was getting to the airlock, it was getting over his eyes so that he couldn't see. 
and it was getting into his ears so his communication system stopped working. He wasn't able to communicate with anyone. And the only way he made it back to the airlock, because there was water as well on the front of his visor and so on, was by feeling his way with the tether that was going back to the airlock. So so we have a sort of breadcrumbs tether, something that, that is always, you, can, you know, for this purpose, you can find your way back to the airlock should you become disorientated. So we followed it back and he got back to the airlock. And they got in and, and, and uh, they were re, you know, repressurized the airlock and, and he came in back into the space station and the crew got his helmet off and he was fine. But by that end point, the, the water was really, you know, getting into his ears and his eyes. He couldn't see if it had, you know, if it got really over his mouth and filled his helmet, he, he would have drowned. And so that's been a very recent case of um, where crews' lives have, have really been endangered um, due to things that we didn't foresee and didn't understand and now have, you know, made sure we understand the problems and we've taken steps to make sure that should it happen again, the crew are in a better situation. So one of the first things they did was uh, basically put a straw in the helmet. It's a simple solution to the best solution. Absolutely. And they stick it in the helmet and it's there now. So should your helmet fill with water, you can sort of, you can find this straw and blow through it, um, you know, and means that there's a sort of connection through to some air elsewhere and, and you're not trying to wipe the water away from your mouth to, to get through things. Is this is this straw? I've got to ask. Is this just a regular drinking straw? Or is this a sort of multi uh, sort of lots of people put in bids to develop this straw? It's a sort of multi thousand pound piece of technology, or is it just literally a drinking straw? Essentially, it, it's not a drinking straw that you or I would buy from the supermarket. No. Okay. Know, with the bend. Ah, with the disappointing. Right. <laughs> um, no, it it, it's a, it is designed to to work with all, all the drinks bag systems, what have you. So mm. you know, up in space, um, all the drinks uh, come in pouches and the straws for the pouches and so on. But it's 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 your standard, as far as I know, it's your standard space day. But we would recognise it as a straw. That's wonderful. I ended my interview by asking Chris Hadfield, given the careful preparation down to the last absolute detail, is there still room to be surprised in space? Are there still things that take you aback? Uh, it, it sounds trite, maybe, but it's the truth in that uh, you cannot be prepared for the unending beauty of the Earth. It... it sounds um, trivial, but it's the opposite. The, the world, every time you come around, the world has changed how it looks because the angle between you and the earth and the sun constantly changes due to your speed. And the, um, the weather patterns constantly change. The lighting is changing. The seasons are changing. And, and so you come over the same place and every single time it's different. It's different than an airliner where it takes a long time to cross a certain territory. So you get a full look at it. On a ship, you only have 20 or 30 seconds to look at something. And then and then it might be a, a day or two until you get time and, and place to look at that again. And, and so it's the, um, the generous richness of the world. Uh, it's, it is awe-inspiring. And, and it, it's very difficult to prepare for. And you feel like you insult it if you don't give it time. When you get to orbit, you you feel like you're you're being disrespectful if you don't just spend time at the window, soaking up the the incredible vista that's been put out there in front of you. Adventures in Space and Tim is made in association with the UK Space Agency and the International Centre for Life Newcastle. The theme music is Modular Space by Martin Molin of Swedish band Wintergarten. This episode was presented, written and produced by Helen Keane and Miriam Underhill, a.k.a. Oh! A Wolf Tea Production.